0: When those films were made and they were first generation prints from the camera negative, the, the result must have been so amazing. And we had lost this knowledge of Meliès and the early films to be as sharp.
1: Out of the silver shadows and into the clique lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebbert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Neil Armstrong may have been the first man, but Georges Méliès conquered the moon for cinema 67 years earlier. In this episode, I talk with Serge Bromberg of Lobster Films, which has restored A Trip to the Moon, as well as films from Chaplin, Keaton, DeMille, DeVivier, and many more. Don't miss an episode of the podcast that covers all of classic cinema. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at iTunes to help others discover us, too. Thanks. A wooden fish, jointed at the neck, swims by, as a submarine, manned by an all-girl navy, passes the other way at the bottom of the ocean. This is the world of Georges Méliès, the most archaic and yet somehow still the most instantly entrancing of famous filmmakers, creator of a world whose artful fakeness is captured truthfully on film. It's a world that we see in unusual clarity in a new set from Flickr Alley and Lobster Films, Méliers fairy tales in color. Thirteen Meliers' fantasies, all hand-tinted, are showcased in restorations from 4K scans, letting us see his creations in stunning detail. Serge Bromberg, film archivist and restorer, French TV host, And Showman, who presents and performs music for these films around the world, is the man behind Lobster Films. I spoke to him recently in Paris about what he and his 27-person crew are working on. Beginning with the true beginning of cinema, Melies.
0: Well, we've been chasing Melies' uh, elements and films for so long at Lobster, and in 2011, 2008, uh, we uh, made a DVD release called Melies, The First Wizard of Cinema, which was actually produced uh, at Lobster, but with the help of Black Hawk Films, David Shepard, and published in the United States by Flickr Alley. Uh, it was DVD only because at the time I don't think there was Blu-ray. And uh, of course, we've been, uh, we've kept searching every single Méliès element that we could. It's really part of our DNA. Now, uh, in the recent years, we found more elements and uh, about a year ago, we've decided to uh, do something a bit special about Méliès. Méliès is focused mostly on uh, uh, academics, historians, people who are interested in the beginnings of cinema. But at the beginning of cinema, people didn't know it was the beginning of cinema. People <laughs> believed that it was just, you know, something happening. L- let's say cinema at the present. So why not show the Melias films as if they were films of today? So we went through all the color film that survived. There's a lot that do not survive, as you may know. We, give, we gave them a uh, new 4K scan and extensive restoration. Some of them, of course, didn't have... Uh, a track. Some of them were published for the first time, like Robinson Crusoe, which has never been seen before. And, um, and, but, the, but the idea was to focus on the fairy tales, which means the films that were to be shown with the narration. And the idea here is, parents, why don't you show kids the Melies films with the sound, the narration, and with the color? So they will not be, like, stopped by the fact that they may be old films because they will have everything a new film has, sound and color. And uh, we go even a bit further because we also tell parents, if you want to cut the narration, that's fine. Just keep the music. And just as you would read fairy tales from books to your kids, why don't you tell them the fairy tales with the images of Melias himself? You will be the narrator and you will be joking with your kids and your kings, your kids will be doing the narration by themselves uh, if they want to play with this idea. And so at the young age, they will become addicts of Melies. And when they are 20, they will be so infected by the passion of cinema that at the end of the day, they will become the next link to uh, Melies' survival. How about that?
1: <laughs> well, I could testify that it works. My son Liam uh, was very excited. We watched a bunch of them last night. Uh, you know, I introduced him to them around, you know, maybe around age 10 or so. And we also read uh, the Hugo Cabre book and, you know, later saw the film. So, you know, as soon as he saw it, he's excited. And it's interesting. It's it, in some ways he's. You know, he's very much a 19th century. He's oriented to 19th century theater, but at the same time, it's instantly attractive. The world is so fake that that seems yeah. to draw kids in.
0: Absolutely, uh, it's really. I mean, it it draws them in in the world in the world of poetry, something that they could not predict, that they don't know anything about, and it. Of course, they're too young to realize that this was the uh, epics and the blockbusters of the <laughs> old days. You know. They are used to gravity, uh, and that's what, what I always say, you know, the, uh, uh, when people see gravity today, the special effects are so thrilling. But everyone knows it's special effects. So uh, it's just watching a movie, even in 3D and everything. Now, in 1902, when they were watching The Trip to the Moon by Georges Méliès, uh, I mean, you know, it, it's a stage like like 18 feet wide. It's cardboard, painted cardboard. They are dressed up with uh, costumes that are totally ridiculous and have only umbrellas. But I'm sure that many people believe that what they, that what they saw on the screen was the real moon. And they were absolutely amazed. So you see, what is what is the the main reason for doing film? Is it, I mean, not certainly not recording history, but it's it has always been amazing people. So that at the end of the day, they will come back and pay another ticket. You know, it's 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 just basics. Well, I think it, it,
1: it Melies is appealing because you can see how it's done. You know, yeah, I. I, you know if you're eight years old I don't know how to make the special effects in a in a modern movie, but I could make a cardboard fish and make it swim across the screen and that's that's instantly entrancing and, and gives you ambitions of making your own movies.
0: Yeah absolutely. Unfortunately I was born in the years of super 8 and 16 millimeter so I could do Super 8. But, uh, you know, all I could do was cut and paste. That, that, that was all we had available at the time. I made a few films at the time when I was a, a very young kid. If I was today with computers and, 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 and cameras and, and telephones, I, I would be Melies myself, I mean, big time. <laughs> at the same time, you're right. What is so magic with Melies is that at the end of the day, it is so simple.
1: Yeah. You know, and one thing I was I was noticing, I, I think it was when I was watching Robinson Crusoe in particular, even when things could easily be three dimensional sets, he still builds two dimensional sets. And you oh. know the it's you know, the commitment to that world or like the the magic cauldron that the devil has in, in one of the shorts. It's like you could just have a, an actual cauldron, but no, they painted a cauldron.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, that's the old tradition of stage. Uh, And plus, you know, when you know the stage is not wide, is not deep, and they have to move around the elements. So at the end of the day, and and you can see that very clearly with the stereoscopic 3D effects that you get on some of the films when you show the A and B negatives, uh, you realize that uh, really that the stage was small, ultra small, and uh, that he he just figured out how should I paint this in order to fake perspective and depth and everything. I mean, that's all stage tricks, you know, like set designers. That's what they all did at the time. Right. Yeah.
1: Let's talk about the color part of it for a yeah. minute. Um, so it's essentially, it's all hand-painted color, right? There's no, There was no stencil system at that point.
0: Not at all. Uh, Melies started doing hand coloring in 1890, 1896. And actually the first system for... Um, uh, stencil appeared in 1905, may- maybe the end of 1904 at Pathé, and it was a proprietary system uh, controlled by Pathé, so uh, called Pathé Color. So uh, Melies started with Mrs. Tuilier, who was who had an atelier with women uh, working there and hand-painted uh, one uh, print at a time, uh, and of course, uh, he stayed with Mrs. Trillier until the end in order to give her work. But you must realize that the way things worked at the time were very different as the way they worked later on. Uh, Pathé needed to reproduce many, many prints in color. So basically he would say, well, that film is in color. And he would distribute it in color throughout the world. You would never have, at least while it was distributed, for the first years, uh, uh, in black and white, Melies had a different uh, approach. His idea was that you can buy the film for, let's say, one franc a meter, uh, and uh, in black and white. And if you want it in color, it'll cost two francs a meter. So basically, if someone ordered a hand-colored print, he would have already the money to hand-color it, which would cost about fifty uh, cents. You would call that uh, per meter. So at the end of the day, uh, the profit was split between Mrs. Tuillier and Georges Méliès. And he would not like paint films in advance. Right. Which, ex- which explains that the print that we have found, that was found in Barcelona of the Trip to the Moon, which is now one of the most famous restorations ever, uh, has that flag hand colored in uh, yellow, red and yellow. Because it is it was probably ordered by a Spanish customer, so it was hand painted uh, for screenings in Spain. So they hand painted the French flag with the Spanish colors just yeah. to please the customer.
1: Well I noticed that in Robinson Crusoe too, when the flag goes up on the fort, it looked like that was an American flag. I'm not sure if it was or not, but it kind of looked like, you know, blue in the upper hand corner and
0: and red well, it's on the it rest. because of William Defoe. Uh, you know, the thing is supposed to happen in Southampton. So yeah. it, it's quite possible. And, and you know, even in the narration, it says Southampton. Huh. So I guess they are in England.
1: So it should have been a and Union
0: Jack, but who knows? The At least the English flag, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking too, I mean, I was looking at like the... The merry Frolics of Satan it seemed like the the painting was much rougher and some of the other ones like the kingdom of fairies it was you know the the painting was very precise uh yes. do you think that's just difference in different people working at uh, Madame to the
0: well, <laughs> That's exactly the thing that we will never know. Uh, It is uh, what one thing is sure is that the uh, elements that we use for miracles of Satan are many uh, and they come from many places. Uh, Some of them are uh, already preservation material from uh, a nitrate print that does not survive. Uh, Most of them are for the color elements come from the I film Institute Uh, and we had fragments in the lobster collection and there is black and white material coming from, uh, library of Congress, which is absolutely stunning the beginning and the end. And I really want to thank them amazingly because without them, the preservation would never have happened. And there was one print in Poland with a lot of black and white, uh, material, but amazingly, taken from a hand colored print so you could you can see the strange shapes of hand coloring that are just shadows because of course the colors are not there but you can you can see the tracks of of the hand painting so we had to assemble i think six different elements uh to produce a final uh restoration and that's the reason why uh, maybe some of those elements were hand painted by the exhibitors themselves you know, nothing prevented anyone from hand-coloring except that it required some skill. And if you were not skilled, then the hand-coloring would be more, brill- more more, let's say, rough. Yeah. Kind of yeah. a
1: color blob just floating over the person. Yeah. There's,
0: there's a very famous example that we did not put in, in, in the uh, uh, compilation called uh, From Paris to Monte Carlo that survives. In two-hand-colored prints, one hand-colored print is very, very short, but the co- hand-coloring is brilliant. It's missing a lot of, of footage, and the other one is fairly complete, but only one of the cars is hand-painted in purple. So it's quite likely that this other print uh, was, like you know, hand-colored just to fake that there was color. But that's the kind of thing that uh, one individual can do, uh, and of course, to to achieve a sophisticated hand painting requires a a lot of uh, skilled workers, like Madame Thulier's, uh atelier.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, where you found. I mean, you've already mentioned a little bit about it, but where you found these different prints? There's there's a particularly charming story in the booklet about the uh, the furniture store that used Melli's yeah. films to entertain yeah. the
0: kids. Yes. Well, it's not Melies. Actually, you know, when you go to stores like Ikea or others, I'm sure many of them have done the same thing. Well, the problem is you need time to decide what furniture you're going to buy and you have the kids and what to do with the kids. So at the entrance, there's always someone uh, that will tell you, well, we can take care of your, of your kids. And they put the kids in little plastic bowls or any, any kind of game sure. uh, just to, 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 to uh, set the hands and, and give time to the parents. Uh, so this is exactly what happened in, in the early days, uh, of the uh, 20th century at the Dufayel store in Paris. Uh, when children came in, uh, people would tell them, well, uh, uh, leave the children and we're going to show them fairy tales and cinema cinema. Wow. That's amazing. And probably kids would just stay there and watch films all day, uh, or at least for a few hours. Uh, When Dufayel closed, the uh, films ended up in the uh, uh, castle of the owner of Dufayel, and that's where they were found a long time ago. Uh, They were preserved two or three times, and depending on what films, but some of the elements we've used in the DVDs are uh, preservations from the Dufayel films that were done in the 60s, or some others are the actual nitrates from Dufayel that we were able to scan. So at the end of the day, you know, there's an an ensemble of these. But, yes, that's one of the possible sources. Uh, I've mentioned the trip to the moon. Well, I guess everyone knows where the trip to the moon was found. It was found in the the Cineteca de Barcelona, in Barcelona, Spain. And um, and we made an exchange with... uh, um, um, with the curator uh, Anton Jimenez, sorry, I had forgotten the name. Uh, we gave us we gave us the print, and then so we were able to restore it between 1999 and 2011. Uh, of course, with the support of Cineteca de Catalunya, with the support of uh, an insurance company, Grupa Magan, with Technicolor Foundation, uh, then French CNC, the National Center of Cinema. So that was a big thing. And that opened actually the, uh, the Cannes Film Festival in 2011. So that's a long time ago, but, uh, I mean, the silent film opening the yeah. Cannes Film Festival <laughs> was quite an achievement, I must say. Uh, what That brought a lo- also a lot of controversy. And, uh, what else? What other films? The, 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 well, I've, I've mentioned the uh, preservation of, uh, Robinson Crusoe from a nitrate print. Um, Um,
1: yeah what were others that uh, we hadn't seen before I mean several were new to me there's not
0: so many there's not many of them I mean all of them are fully re-restored in a way that they are re-digitized in 4k and uh, re-stabilized and you know cleaned up Uh, not ultra cleaned up because uh, you should not do that with the stencil coloring uh, or with the hand coloring sorry uh, because you know there's some kind of magic with the fact that the hand coloring is uneven, and if you put it in uh, one of these cleanup softwares like Diamond, Diamond, or Phoenix, uh, it'll like smoothen uh, these uh, 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 rough parts of the hand coloring, and which are part of the film itself. So we we tried not to uh, do too much deflicker and and you know like clean up. Um, but yeah, you know, at the time, I don't remember what titles we have in the film uh, in the DVD.
1: Well, let's talk about the one—the one that I liked the best. I mean, it was really—I just thought it was a beautifully done example with so much beautiful set building and everything. Was the Kingdom of Fairies? Wow! Yeah, was, it, was that a is that a relatively new kind of nice. one? <laughs> yeah,
0: kind of nice. Yeah. Well, that one—the original element comes from the British Film Institute and uh and it, it's one of the most splendid films ever uh with the uh, escape the castle in, on fire and the uh, the uh, throne and the wicked witch and uh, it <laughs> has every, and the boat and the tempest and uh, everything yeah it's it's a stunningly beautiful film stunningly beautiful uh, the uh, yes, the, it's in the King of Paris where they are underwater and yeah. they try to swim, <laughs> and it's obvious <laughs> that they're faking swimming. But, well, try to fake your swimming in water when you're actually walking on a set, right? Right. <laughs> and um, but that's that also. I mean, you you after some some time, you tend to believe everything you see, and and uh, and oh well, these guys behave strangely. Well. That's probably because there was strange at the time of Melies, or they was strange in Montreuil, or in in Melies' studio. Yeah, that's that's poetry. It's 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 one of the most amazing films. I do agree with you.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and and for that film, we had a, a in the in the in the the DVD set of two thousand eight, we had a terrible uh, terrible uh, music track, uh, and we didn't have the narration. I think uh, so. Now we've we've. Have, we have the narration back and, and the track has been changed.
1: Well, you know, so many of these, I mean, what really struck me was just the fine detail of the set. Someone someone who painted these things in a way that they kind of look like steel engravings of the time or something like that, which I thought was interesting that, you know, full-scale, full-scale sets are imitating an illustrative style from printing. Um, but that detail, I mean, like you mentioned, the, the early parts of uh, now I forgotten which one it was that came from Library of Congress. The early parts, uh, oh, of Mary. The Felix. Mary
0: Felix of Satan. Yeah, I mean yeah. that
1: that's so beautifully detailed, and that's where the four K four K scan. You know, you can see where that that was money well spent.
0: Well, um, you can, you can, you can you also realize how important it is to start from a good element. Uh, if you have a second, third or fourth generation elements, you've lost the depth, you've lost uh, the the sharpness of the image. Well, at the time, uh, the image was unsteady. the orthochromatic stock made it very contrasty, and probably the light was either too bright or too dim, and you could hardly see anything on the screen. Well, most of the time you had someone with a large, a woman with a large hat in front of you, (laughs) so you wouldn't see the screen anyway. But um, uh, yes, uh, it comes to, to back to the idea that when those films were made and they were first generation prints from the camera negative, the the result must have been so amazing. And we had lost this this uh, uh, knowledge of Méliès and the early films to be as sharp. Uh, it goes also for the Lumière films. You know when they found the camera negatives of the Lumière films, and now what we see on screen, uh, they are of course they are much more much brighter, much sharper, much steadier than uh, they ever were before. But at the end of the day, it reminds you that in the, at the beginning of the 20th century, hey, guess what? The world was probably in color and it was very much <laughs> in focus. So uh, yeah, it's it's really amazing. In a way, it's the dream of of those directors who probably never saw their films projected right that we are achieving now with the with the technologies.
1: Yeah, I wonder because you you talk in the um, oh, I guess it was in an interview I was listening to. Uh, you're talking about not correcting things too much. Yes, and I wonder. I mean, I, are we? I feel this with a lot of older movies, we're sort of training ourselves to see them better than anybody ever saw them before, and that's a little a little unnatural. I mean, it's a problem I can live with, but... Well,
0: uh, yeah. Okay, let, let, let me tell you this, and I get this from Kevin Rollo, so I'm, I'm very confident that it is true. Um, if you really want to revive the experience of watching a Charlie Chaplin short as the Keystone shorts were shown in 1914, uh, don't go in a cinema. Go in a place that is either too cold or too (laughs) hot, depending on the season. Don't put air conditioning, never. Do not sit on comfortable uh, uh, seats. Just use a wooden chair. Uh, Please do sit by someone who has not washed for five days. (laughs) Uh, You must remember that in the old days, the uh, problem with cinema was fleas. If someone had fleas, everyone who would go to the cinema would have the same fleas. So between each uh, uh, screening, the owner would come with uh, uh, like fly talks and and disinfectant. So when you entered a cinema, the smell of disinfectant was the first thing that would catch you. Then, you know, uh, I mentioned already the, the ladies with hats. And, and, all, and people noisy in, in the theater. You need to have all that to revive the experience of Chaplin in 1914. So <laughs> do you want that? No. So we have to be somewhere in between that uh, tragic experience and the ultra-comfortable experience of today with an image that is steady and rah. rah, rah, rah. So l- let's face it we will never have the experience of the early days and no one has ever pretended that what we were showing was what was shown in at that time we are showing the films today and if someone, some people want to show films on the original nitrate prints that's absolutely fine with me if some people want to uh, uh, show 16 mil prints where blu-ray or DCP is available that's absolutely fine with me because that's also part of reviving some kind of experience it's normal it's necessary that the archives keep retain the 35 millimeter experience and keep screening films in 35 5 but at the end of the day think of it if whenever we have a rental for one of our print we have to check the print first ship it check it when it comes back every other time there will be a scratch we'll have to call the insurance they will have to we'll have to reprint it but there will be no more uh, uh, lab or no more stock available and so on no more knowledge of how to print write something so at the end of the day one screening will cost us so much money when with digital technologies, you just have to download the DCP with the KDM. There's no, no, no need, no risk of piracy or anything. And at the end of the day, everyone is happy. So we have to make a choice. For preservation and for academic or cinematic screenings, it's absolutely normal that we keep attempting to show 35 millimeter prints when we want to. But when we go to mass distribution, well, come on, the the days of piano and cinema at the same time for silent films are gone. If you want to go to a cine concert, and I'm giving one every single day at the moment, I'm fine. I was in Helsinki last week, I'll be in Poland in a few days, I'll be in Peru next week. So, and, and I was yesterday in the south of France, just doing my concerts and, and, and shows. But you know, let's face it, if you want to to, to, to show the films, to many people, you'll have to go to the new medias. You'll have to go to television, to Blu-rays, which are already, I'm afraid, old medias, or <laughs> online and things like that. And and if you're lucky to attract people to a cinema where they will have the real experience, it's even better. But you must not do only that. You you must not be against new technologies. Let, let, let me tell you one thing. I remember one day, you know Martin Kerber? Have you ever uh, interviewed Martin Kerber. He's the, he's he's like one of the popes of film preservation. And he was asked at the Cinémathèque Francaise about six or seven years ago. Uh, what do you, what would you think of putting, uh, Metropolis online? Oh, well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, should we put it online and so people will not watch it the way it should be and so on and so on. So he, his presentation uh, uh, happened. He goes on stage, tries to connect his computer, and then he's, he's connected. And so he says, he goes to, to internet and says Metropolis on video. And then he has a list of 20 pirate websites that are offering for free metropolis, and says, well, you know, that answers the question. And he (laughs) closes his computer and goes away. So, okay, the world is the world, whether we want it or not.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate to live in a major city. Well, fortunate in the sense that I I designed my life to end up here so I could see movies. Um, But uh, I love
0: Chicago. Yeah. What is my kind of town, as they used to say? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's still the, uh, the the tagline of Chicago, but that was a tagline in the eighties.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know, you mentioned Chaplin, and I was going to ask you about that because I think there's the really interesting thing that you know you worked on in various ways uh, in the U.S. We had David Shepard putting them out, uh, but I know you were involved as well. Um, first the keystones, then the SNAs, then the mutuals. You you talked about how the keystones were done photochemically, and then by the time you're doing you're working on the SNAs and the mutuals, that's the digital technology had come in. So yeah, tell me tell me about how all that yeah, works. That's
0: very that's very simple. The, the what we call the Chaplin project, which is actually an extension of the idea that Bologna and the uh, Chaplin Association had. The Chaplin project for the shorts was basically uh, uh, the idea of gathering, trying to locate every single print of the Chaplin shorts that survived in the world and bring everything in one only place and restore all the films the best way before the elements would just melt. And uh, it it started in 2002 uh, as a union between, as, as, as a joint operation between bologna the british film institute and lobster under the the aegis of the chaplin association Uh, we found the financing and and produced all that but basically at the time uh, digital technologies did not exist so we did part of the uh the, the most important part of the work was gathering the material. It took years, and uh, when we were sure that we had the best material on one title, we would just uh, uh, make the printing. Because we were uh, only uh, photochemical at the time, uh, the choice was made to split the works between the two uh, institutions that had labs, uh, the British Film Institute and Bologna so some films were made at BFI and some films were made at Bologna if I remember well the first DVD or blu-ray uh, of, of the keystones was released in 2010 or something like this and uh, And at the time the technologies were uh, the 2k and, and digital technologies were still not available but when we had passed that step uh, we decided to move forward and go to the uh, uh mutual. I think we did the mutual um after the keystone and for the mutuals um the case was a bit different because uh we were not it was not the first search there had been searches of uh, mutual elements uh David Shepard had acquired the um elements which were dupe negatives most of the time, cropped uh, versions, which means that the track, uh, the soundtrack, was uh, hiding part of the image. So he had the dupe negative from the teleprompter company. Uh, it was called the Charlie Chaplin, the Chaplin Festival, a release made in the 40s with the Van Buren tracks. So at the time, they were the first release of the Chaplin short with a score and... Um, the uh, uh, Chuck, uh, uh, David Shepherd had used that for his previous releases uh, through Image Entertainment, but it was obvious that because we were missing part of the image, those elements could not be used. And David Shepherd was always with us, always following everything we did for the three companies. And David Shepard is is my blood brother in a way. So uh, uh, everything I did, I did with his consent or his advice or his uh, uh, feeling. But uh, so for, for Mutual, we went to other institutions and found good material for every single film, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, from the B-negatives. Uh, because there were material in in Europe, and for some titles there was nothing in the U.S. Uh, For example, uh, 1 a.m., on which there are scenes that do not exist in in the American negatives, Uh, the cure was a bit tricky, and so on. So uh, for that, BFI had stepped out. And the idea was that the films would be scanned at uh, Bologna, and we would, sp- and and the reconstruction would be approved jointly, and when we would know what we use from what print or what element, then the films would be scanned in Bologna, and uh, uh, we would uh, share. We would uh, each of us would do half and half the digital cleanup, and when the SNA uh, arrived, uh, we were very fortunate to have the help, uh, the very friendly help of MoMA, uh, who had acquired in 1939 a collection of nitrate fine grains from the camera negatives called the Rubenstein Collection. And uh, we could access those elements with the, with the help of, of uh, MoMA, scan them again in, uh, in Bologna, and about all the restoration was made in, uh, at lobster, let's say 90%. Uh, so you see it evolved b- between the three, uh, uh, the three things, but it has always been like done in a, a joint spirit. I mean, if we did not do it in, in, uh, Bologna, that's because we we're busy with other things. But, you know, when, when we went to music, for example, Bologna would say, oh, well, we would like to commission a score for our imaginary Travata, uh, Cinema Ritrovato Festival, and they would record wonderful scores by Tim Brock or other composers and the, uh, Orchestra Comunale de Bologna. Uh, but we would say, oh, we would like to do another score for another film. And then we at Lobster would go somewhere else. Basically, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a joint adventure. Um, if, if I must say that, um, Bologna, uh, has started at, about at the same time as lobster in the early, A- late eighties and, uh, and, and Nicola Mazzanti uh, was in Bologna at the time. Paolo Kekiusai was in Bologna at the time. Um, and of course, Gianluca Farinelli and everyone at Bologna are like, you know, brothers. Uh, we've been there always, and I guess we'll always be there also. And if it's good for Chaplin, that's fine with me.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so in terms of what you could do in restoration, what was the big difference in being able to work digitally now in terms of those particular films? I mean, the Keystones seem pretty rough and ready. They, they got beaten up a lot over the years. Well, um,
0: you know, he, he, the thing is the, the Keystone films are, much, much, are very rare. Uh, they were released once you could probably print about 60 to 80 prints from one negative and then the negative would be dead. Uh, so there were not so many prints. Uh, we found a contract of 1922 when the cha- the keystone, some of the Keystone uh, negatives were in Paris. Uh, it was a distribution deal with Pathé, I think. And it, on the, the contract, it said, well, you admit that the negatives are already very damaged. But that's all we can deliver. So you accept the deal and take the negatives as they are, or we don't sign the deal. And Pathé signed it. So uh, there were, at the time, in the 20s, many jump cuts, many lines. There was no wet gate printing and so on. So, yes, there were less material in the keystones. Uh, What we could do is basically remove the scratches with the wet gate printing system. Uh, And uh, basically the restoration meant choosing the best elements, assembling them, and restoring the uh, dialogue cards as close as could be from what we knew to be the original cards. Uh, For that, we used some of the paper prints uh, that were at the Library of Congress. The quality was mediocre, but at least they were made before the films were released from the original negatives. So we knew how the title cards looked like and everything. So you see, you would have a lot of spots, you would have a lot of visible splices that probably would not show as much with digital technologies. It's quite likely that at some point, although it's an enormous work and no one is uh, has time or financing to do that, but it's quite likely that at some point the three Archives who have made the uh, Chaplin Keystone project will uh work again on those films and do digital cleanup so at least they will be let's say per two days restoration standard restored
1: let's talk about Buster Keaton because you're also working on project with him and there's there's one, oh, yeah and one really astounding discovery that I saw when you came to Chicago and has since been put out on blu-ray which is the other version probably the real blacksmith. version of the blacksmith right
0: yeah well that that phew, this is a, such an unbelievable story uh, one day uh, and sorry if I'm wrong with the dates but it was probably in 2012 I uh, I received a call from a man in uh, Argentina uh, who spoke uh, with a very heavy Spanish accent and said, "Hello, uh, are you Serge Bromberg? Interested in the in Buster Keaton films?" "Yes. Well, I think I found a lost Buster Keaton film. Oh, yes. Well, what what is it? And you know, I thought it was a desert hero, a country hero, which is the uh, uh, one of the, probably the only lost silent film by uh, um, Keaton. And he said, the, the title is The Blacksmith. I said, but blacksmith does exist. It's everywhere. And, uh, and, and the man says, oh, oh yeah, oh, sorry. I realized I started the conversation wrong. Well, okay, I'm Fernando Pena, the man who discovered the lost scenes of Metropolis. <laughs> And I think I found uh, another version that is lost of um, of the blacksmith by uh, Keaton. And I said, well, that's very different. Can you show me? And he said, yes, there are many differences between the version that you know, that we all know, and the version that I found. So uh, he projected his print on the wall and obviously there were scenes that were very different, uh, including the scene—if you know the film—where he put his blackened hands on the white horse. That scene is gone and replaced by another scene where he goes out and there's a crazy chase and there's a joke with a woman undressing in a window and everything. So it's, it's really, really funny. And and the the, the version he had on on. In his print was much better than anything I had known before. I said, well, what is your print? He says, well, it's 9.5. It's Pathé Baby. It's a French print. I said, come on. Well, maybe you could send it to me and we could restore it and show it because that's what we do. And he said, but no, you, you don't understand. It's, that, that's ridiculous. Uh, if my print is different then probably all the 9.5 prints in the world are different. And, you know, 9.5 is like VHS or DVD. There are hundreds. So why don't you find a print uh, in 9.5 in France? And I'm sure it'll be this other version. The only thing I can tell you is what I have discovered is that there are two versions, and the 9.5 is the other one. So, yes, I did that, and I called the... uh, the French archives and, and said, well, do you have the printing 9.5 negative of, um, of blacksmith? And they said, yes, uh, we have that. So can I visit and, and inspect it? Oh yes. So I go there and inspect it. And it was the, the B version. I mean, the, the version that Fernando had uh, located. So I thought, well, that's interesting But if they have it in 9.5 and no one knows there are two versions, maybe they have another print in 35 and that will also be the other version. So I said, well, would you have another print? And they said, yes, we have another print in 35. Can I inspect it? Yes. So we inspected it. And guess what? That print was deposited. By Lobster Films, us. (laughs) And we had not checked it and we didn't know. And it's something bizarre because if you check the former uh, uh, distribution on DVD, uh, there were uh, decomposing moments in the A negative that we had replaced with parts of our element. So basically, there are scenes in the old DVD version that come from the B element. But we, we didn't know. Yeah. We did not compare <laughs> carefully enough. So I must say we have been uh, okay, we've made a mistake here. Apologize, apologize, apologize. But now, how come that two versions of the same film could survive and uh, that the version that we have found in France uh, could be better? Well, the story is really interesting. In 1921, uh, Buster Keaton made a sneak preview of the blacksmith and the result was not what he expected. People thought that the joke with the horse and the black hands was kind of the same joke that he would do after with the car and, and they found the film rather weak. So he decided to put it aside and that we found out later, of course, to put it, and thanks to the, the help of John Bengtson also, with his fabulous book about the uh, the silent echoes and silent traces, so uh, he put the film aside and then decided to reshoot a few scenes, which are the scenes that we have in the B version, uh, and those scenes were shot in the in the spring of 1922, and the film was eventually released later in the year 1922 with great success. Well, what happens is that no print of that re-release survives, none of them, or or at least none survived in 35mm as far as we knew. The only print that could be identified is the print that was in the house of Buster Keaton when he was married with Natalie Talmadge. He got divorced lost the house. The house was sold to many people and then eventually in the late 50s was sold to the actor James Mason. And when James Mason was inspecting the house, he found behind a rose tree, like a bush, he found a little door. And behind that door was the old washing machine room uh, and, and there was a stack of cans. And among those cans was a print of blacksmith. So everyone thought, wow, that's Keaton's personal print of Blacksmith, that must be the film. But actually, that was the film that he had found and shown in the sneak preview of 1921 and that was never approved. And I find it I find that story absolutely amazing that he takes Fernando Peña in Argentina and the Bromberg in France and and, and and James Mason in America. You know, and and a, a Rose Tree and at the end of the day, all the, these miracles just line up one after the other. So at the end of the day, now we have not only the approved version, but also the one before. We chose us what, what he liked, what he disliked, how he changed the film. That's the kind of thing you never find in, in, in the silent cinema.
1: Right, yeah. To to have that kind of material to show you yeah, the yeah. thing in process, unless um, you're
0: lucky enough to find the outtakes of the Chaplin Mutuals when yeah. we all told the story. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah. Tell me about the the Buster Keaton project overall. What what is going on with that?
0: Well, the, actually, unfortunately, well, you you know the story. It's a joke. the 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 Channel Tunnel between France and England, people always say, well, you know, uh, let the, the the English start digging and the French start digging from their side. And if they meet in the middle of the ocean, there'll be one tunnel. And if they don't meet, then there'll be two tunnels. So. <laughs> the uh, it seems that for what we call the Buster Keaton project, there was to be one Buster Keaton project Uh, that was uh, a project imagined between uh, Bologna and Lobster uh, just to follow the restoration of the SNA, uh, Chaplin films. And, well, let's say that at the last moment, there has been some kind of uh, uh, facts that led to uh, two uh, Buster Keaton projects to be led together. That's the two-tunnel option. Uh, Bologna is restoring from Cohen's material uh, uh, the the Buster Keaton films, which include the silent shorts with Buster Keaton only and the feature films that Cohen owns. And we have decided to restore from, from all the other material that we could find around the world, including our material, including the Black Hawk Films material, because as you know, Lobster uh, and Black Hawk are, are now only the same company, um, and and other archive we have so much more material. Our plan starts in 1917 with the first uh, Buster Keaton Fatty Arbuckle films, so they are in our... Buster Keaton projects, and uh, now we're working, you know, on the uh, on the feature films. We've made four feature films for which we considered that we have the best elements that survive. Uh, the General, Steamboat Bill Jr., uh, College that was fairly tricky, and the Three Ages that was very, very, very tricky but uh those well you can see the, find the, see the differences between the old versions and the new versions because for those four films the new versions are available with Kino and uh and available of course they, they can also be shown uh, they've have, they've have been restored in 2K or 4K from 4K scans and we have new scores for everything and so on and we're working on new projects all the time so whenever new uh Kitten films are made available for many reasons. Then we would go on, the, we would work on them. And uh, at the moment, we're completing a restoration of uh, our hospitality from absolutely jaw-dropping source material. No one has ever seen anything like this. And uh, we've commissioned a new score, orchestral score, that has been recorded. So at the end of the day, uh, you know... Uh, Yes, there will be two tunnels. One will be Cohen, most probably, uh, and the other tunnel will be Lobster Films and Salavi. Yeah,
1: um, you know, one thing I was interested in is uh, there's a certain uh, U.S. centric outlook in silent com- film community here that assumes that most of the films come from America and most of the work is done in America and so on. Um, Nitrateville has somewhat international audience, but I wouldn't say we're entirely free of that. And so one of the things I always found interesting going back many years with David Shepard's releases was the many French films that were put out. Because, I mean, when I was a kid reading about silent film, there was one French film after Melies, which was The Passion of Joan of Arc. And there was sort of 20 years where nothing happened in between. Um, And of course, that's not at all true. And you know i've seen many of these films the jacques Feder films uh yeah L'inhumain, pardon me if i mangle the pronunciation l'illumine yeah L'inhumaine. okay <laughs> which you know got a very a very mixed reaction uh in the world really? you know, in Nitrateville. Uh, really? You kind of divided into people who thought it was cool to look at and didn't make much sense, and people who
0: just thought it didn't make much sense. But uh, <laughs> Who are we to decide, you know? Yeah. We restore the masterpiece. It's like, oh, well, Fritz Lang, well, not exactly a good director. Who would say that? No one. So, okay, Inhumane may, may be appreciated by some. I know. Personally, I'm, there's there are many films that I prefer uh, compared to Lin-Humane. Uh, Linumen, for me has a lot of defects, but at the same time it's Linumen, and that's the french metropolis
1: yeah yeah mm. well yeah tell me about uh, you know your work with with french cinema then okay I
0: get... well let l- l- let me tell you this uh i met david shepard at in the uh, late nineteen uh, eighties and uh Instantly, he could see that the lobster collection was full of treasures. He was very Francophile. He loved French cinema and, and, uh, as oldie, and, and English cinema and Russian cinema. So he was very uh, academic and, and, and very curious. And he, 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 he was wonderful. So at the end of the day, uh, meeting me was like, oh, God, some, uh, some French collector who's not totally stupid, who has nitrates that I may restore and use for my own releases. And of course, when I met him, I thought, well, oh gee, all the, the Blackhawk negatives, all the, I mean, all <laughs> the, this man had. So at the end of the day, we, there was no, no, no way out. We had to work together. And we eventually found the best way, which was that uh, one would get any, as many films as he wanted from the other, as long as, as he was happy. So, and you know, we were so happy to work together and to, to discuss new projects. I mean, the lobster collection is more than a, probably 130,000 cans at the moment. So you can imagine that it's just like endless. And, um, and and there's all these archives and all these wonderful people throughout the world who love films, who, who, who keep films. And, and really, we, we are not an anti-archive institution at all. We are actually a FIAF supporter now. We, are, we have subscribed to FIAF finally. Uh, so basically, David would just go call us and say, what, what French film do you have? And then we would just provide them. Uh, it's true that when David decided to move from, uh, Los Angeles to Hat Creek in the last 10 years of his life, he was farther from the, uh, uh, technical centers, technical places. You know, he lived in Hat Creek, which is near the Oregon, uh, uh state and in the middle of the woods. And we just, uh, enjoy the time to visit friends and watch films. And that's all. So for the last 10 years, basically everything that was advertised as David, uh, the Black Hawk restoration uh, was actually made at Lobster. Uh, Inhumane was preserved at Lobster from the camera negative of the film. Uh, But it's just one in so many, even the, uh, the Lost World. Uh, is something, is actually a a re-release, a re-restoration that was 100% led by uh, me and Eric Lange at Lobster in the Lobster laboratory. Now, to to tell you a bit more about Lobster, we are uh, about 25 people working here. Uh, We have sound restoration, image restoration, and uh, scanning and and everything it takes, even Blu-ray, Publishing. We work very closely with uh, Flickr Alley and Kino, which are our two uh, friend companies in the US for the release of that kind of film. And basically, we try to do our best uh, whenever we start a project, no matter the cost, uh, which may lead us to bankruptcy at some point. But it seems that our love of, of classic films is uh strong enough to keep us alive uh i just also want to say a big hello to our friends at nitrateville and apologize for not being there uh it's it's true that you know 27 employees shows around the world i'm a tv host i'm the president of one of the fiaf archive in france the army cinema unit which uh Uh, Holds all the archives shot by the army or for the army since 1915. It's like 400 uh, uh, Militaries and employees in a fort in the suburbs of Paris Uh, I'm producing films. I'm directing films. I have three kids Uh, Listen at the end of the day uh, and and when I'm when I'm the people go to sleep in France, people wake up in California, and the day goes on. So at some point, I need time to, to eat and, <laughs> and and enjoy a, a, a bit life. So that's why I never go on Nitrate veal.
1: Well, you know, one of the reasons, actually, that I started doing the podcast is because you tend to get, you know, you get the, the kind of person who's like, well, if this exists, then I want it right now. And I know that people who are in archives or whatever, I mean, they don't have time to Fiddle around with that, most of, of them. I mean, some did. David Shepherd participated certainly, but uh, but yeah, on David the whole, Shepard,
0: David Shepard has had a strange relationship with the official archives. Yeah, he was an, <laughs> an official archive, but uh, when it came to well, in in some archives, Dave, the name David Shepherd is notorious. I can tell you that that, uh, release that you have not had in the U S unfortunately, because criterion owns the right to the film. Uh, It's a, it's a film called the King of Kings, Kings, uh, that we have shown in uh, the grace cathedral in San Francisco with the organ, the new restoration of King of Kings took six months to six people full time. Uh, so you must realize that when you watch a film, uh, on Blu-ray, uh, it can be the result of years, maybe ten, maybe twenty years of search, and the fact that you can get it for twenty bucks and watch it on your screen with the highest possible quality is a pride for us. But let me let me tell you one thing. You know Jean Gabin, the French actor. Okay, there was a there was a print of Jean Gabin in the uh, in, in UCLA Film Archive of a lost. Jean Gabin film made in 1932 called La Belle Marinière. A man uh, called Chuck Ziegman realized that in 2005 and sent me a message. And the message you know, arrived in a, tons of messages and just was wiped away without my brain to realize what he was saying to me. So he wrote again in maybe 2012 and said, well, you're not interested in La Belle Marinière. Then I realized that the rights did, were not clear, that the film was very complex, that the print was incomplete and so on. But I decided, OK, well, why not? I called UCLA. They say, well, we have five reels and yes, we would love to work with you. And, and because it's a French film speaking French without subtitles, but we're missing four reels out of nine. Well, that you know that's fine it's an event and 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 uh, uh Jean Gabin is like Gary cooper in the sure. in the United states so uh so we bring the, the five cans and of course it's a big event and everyone is following uh, uh, oh the, the cans have arrived and now they are being restored and now they are uh, being scanned and now the image is being cleaned up but unfortunately the sound because we received the dupe negative the sound is negative and it's not density track it's variable density city so with, there is no scanner that can read the sound well so what do we do we develop a scanner it took nine months without technician so for nine there's no scanner that can do that anywhere in the world nine months for nine months nine months we receive messages of insults like hey you say you're restoring the film what are you doing it's only five reels so we explain but no they need to complain okay the film is finished we have only the five reels, but at least we, we claim that. We bring Chuck Ziegman uh, in Paris, and we make the world premiere of the film. And he's very proud and so on. And at the end of the screening, he goes on stage and says, well, that's great, guys. You've made a great work. But as far as I remember, there was more. I mean, you have only five reels. You, you don't have reel one. I'm fairly sure I've seen reel one, and there must have been another reel I've seen. <laughs> so what do we do? You know, we, we had intended to to publish the the Blu-ray, like, in the next month. So we stop everything. Imagine what would have happened if we had released the, the five reels, and then three months later, we would have said, hey, we found two more. So we have to do a new Blu-ray, explain to people that we found two more reels, so they will shout at us, saying, well, couldn't you check before? You idiot. (laughs) Okay, so we we wait. We wait for six months, nine months, about a year. And then after one year, Chuck Ziegman writes us, I'm sorry. Yes, there was nothing more. I've checked my notes. There's nothing more. All all that exists is there. And so we publish the the DVD at uh, the Blu-ray at that moment. And you cannot imagine how many complaints we have received for being slow. But yeah. no, we've not been slow. We've been careful. And if you if you get an element on a film, you rush on that element, you restore that element, and then at the end of the process you realize that the better element is nearby, with more focus, more sharpness, more steadiness, more scenes, more accuracy and everything. Well, who are who is to blame? You. So we do a work that is serious and we do it at at the right speed. And I'm very uh, sorry if it's not fast enough, but that's the way professionals work. And there's a good way and a wrong way to paraphrase uh, uh, Lauren Hardy. And I would like as much as possible to always use the good way. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm sorry that people, people are like that. Uh, you know, I – I enjoy enjoy when long-awaited uh, delights finally come out. You know, I read mm-hmm. about behind the door in uh, you know in Kevin Brownlow's book when I was a teenager, and I only had to late, wait until late middle age to finally get to see it. So
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I I see what you mean, but at the same time, I I, I can understand that that. Uh, amateurs or collectors are impatient. They don't have the full information, and and you know we all work for the same thing to to show films. And you know some, sometimes there can be no good answer, like you know should we stabilize the Lumiere films or not? Well, in the old days they were not stabilized, but at the same time they didn't have the means to stabilize. So today we have, so we should stabilize. Oh yes, but if it's stabilized, it's not like in the old days. Yes, but in the, uh, and it can go on forever you know so
1: yeah i think of that too with like you know david Shepard, i know for the keystones talked about you know not wanting to throw you out of the film with sudden shifts in the quality of what you're looking at and then you compare that with like the tilly's punctured romance restoration that just flickers from perfect to looking like you're seeing it through a screen window in a snowstorm.
0: Of course, and- <laughs> but that you know, that Tillis-Punctured Romance, you should discuss that with Ross Lipman, who at the time was the uh, curator for that restoration at UCLA Film Archive. Well, he, he said what he would do, and he did what he said. Yeah. Which is basically keep every single frame so that we would know that there was a frame here that was like that. So, in a way, it was very abrupt, probably not audience-oriented, but at the same time, uh, he, it was an archivist approach to a concept of restoration. Yeah. Uh, and that's very smart. Now, we didn't do the same thing. When we have three frames after a card that are s- seamless, and then after those three frames that are ugly, it goes into 35 millimeter first generation. We would extend the, 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 the dialogue card by three frames so we wouldn't have the jump cut, which is annoying. But it's a different approach, a different philosophy. And I'm very glad that, that Ross did that the way he did it and preserved the film. He preserved it because that's one, one of the ways that our academic and that, that make a lot of sense. I mean, you know, I'm very friendly with, with Ross. And actually, to tell you the truth, I'm having dinner with him and the curator of the Cinémathèque Française next Monday in Paris. <laughs> so that's just to tell you I'm not yeah. upset. It's not one against the other. We're yeah. all trying to do our best. And sometimes we don't know what to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, any projects that you have in the future that you can talk about, uh, and you know, and be sure and be quick about them too, because we're we're
0: sick of waiting around. So uh, <laughs> there's there's many projects that we're working on, but not all of them are uh, meant for America. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, we just finished a restoration of l'argent money. Uh, that we will publish in the uh, United States with a new restoration of Autour de l'Argent. It's a Marcel L'Herbier masterpiece. We're working on the last and last Max Linder film called The King of the Circus with uh, many archives. Eleven elements are used for that, including elements from Argentina, Ukraine, uh, uh, Holland, uh, England, France, of course, uh, I, I'm, I'm missing a few I'm sure uh, we're working on 10 Duvivier silent films Wow! Uh, the early uh, period of Duvivier we are working on new restorations of uh which was a Jacques Feder film which will not be in the United States because it has already been made available and already was a flop or, although <laughs> it's a masterpiece but c'est la vie I, I have uh, a
1: set, I've, I've got it on my shelf
0: good good and uh we're working on what else oh many 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 uh what that i cannot say that i cannot say (laughs) uh yes well i i I mentioned the uh the uh oh yes there's something we are launching a kickstarter campaign so we i can say that all right uh in february I think it's at the end of February. We are launching a huge Kickstarter campaign to digitize 100 films about trains. Hmm. You should know that uh, uh, Kent Easting was the founder of Black Hawk in 1927, was a big train fan, and Blackhawk for in the 50s and 60s, I believe, was uh, actually in Davenport, uh, Iowa, in a, in an old uh, warehouse near a railroad track because Mr. Easton wanted to be close to trains, uh, and that craze of trains uh, ended up that there's hundreds of train films in the Black Hawk libraries, fiction films, amateur films, the famous train film, Black Hawk train films uh, that were very cheaply pirated by a DVD company uh, from prints that are absolutely awful. Well, basically our idea is to get back to the major train films from France, Russia, England, of course, America, for example, we will, well, you all know the great train robbery uh, from the 16 millimeter print uh, that Black Hawk released in the old days. Well, guess what? The 35 millimeter prints, the nitrate does survive and we will scan that and guess what? It'll be absolutely beautiful. So we'll have that. We'll have the entrance of a train, of course, by Lumiere, but by so many others. You know, in the first five years of cinema, everyone was filming entrances of trains. And we have a Russian film called Golubosh Express. And we have uh, Danger Lights, the RKO film. Oh, yeah, the yeah. uh, RKO film that we will restore from the fine grain of the camera native that is at the Library of Congress. So, you see, the, 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 many... Uh, trained films. And we hope that at the end of the day, it's, it's possible that there will never be any DVD or Blu-rays because DVDs or Blu-rays will be gone by that time. But at least they'll be made available with the new new technologies. And uh, we want to get them at the highest uh, quality levels. And of course, there'll be hundreds of, of uh, films that I cannot list here. Um, and uh, yes, I will be in the United States for Mostly Lost in June. And also for the uh, San Francisco Silent Film Festival, where we will show a little surprise. And it will be the first weekend of May, which is much earlier than it was before. So be sure, if you're interested in silent films, to in San Francisco at the beginning of May. I've mentioned Buster Keaton. I've mentioned, uh, uh, well, what else? Hundreds. It, it, Hundreds. Uh, All day, all day, you know, lobster is 27 people and every day there's one or two say, Hey, guess what? And so we all stop and say, What have you found? What have you found? And uh, it's it's, it's amazing. It's the Alibaba uh, uh, treasure, uh, lobster.
1: Next to my guest, Serge Bromberg. Music is by Eric LeGuin from The Kingdom of Fairies on Melier's Fairy Tales in Color from Flickr Alley. Links for that and other titles we talked about will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. The music is by Kevin MacLeod. Remember to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and to leave us a rating or a review at iTunes. And now I see the girls are loading my space capsule into the big gun. If I survive, I'll be back in a few weeks. Thanks for listening, and au revoir!